WDBM East Lansing. Welcome to Impact Exposure. Exposure is 88.9 The Impact's one-hour forum discussing relevant issues affecting the MSU community. And now, tonight's Exposure. Good evening, Impact Exposure. I'm Abby Newton. It's great to be back on the air with my fellow Spartans and fellow East Lansing and Lansing citizens. For the last 20 days, I've been on a cross-country road trip with my sister, all by car. We drove 8,000 miles through 18 states in 20 days. It was an adventure to say the least. We camped in the Badlands, saw the sun set behind the Grand Tetons Mountains, ran for our lives from bears in Yellowstone, met cowboys in Wyoming, enjoyed the rain in Seattle, laughed as our hair flew blew through the wind, wind while driving Pacific Highway 1, walked the steepest street in San Francisco, stared at the characters at Venice Beach in Los Angeles while holding onto our purses tightly, walked the strip in Vegas, and sang to Journey while driving through the uneventful Kansas to reach home in Indiana. I had a wonderful time and was so fortunate to have my sister as a travel mate. But now, back to work. However, before that, I must wish a happy birthday to my mother, a fantastic woman who birthed two daughters and four sons. And now she is celebrating her day at one of those sons' baseball games. Enjoy that slushy and soft pretzel, Mom. (laughs) And now, back to the first live broadcast of Exposure for this summer. What's on the docket? Well, Exposure spoke to the owner of a new store that's opening in Old Town Lansing. We also find out why Australian zebra finches and stuttering have something in common. Later on the show, we will sit down with a Michigan State student who is a former Marine sniper and speak with a Spartan alum who is now an independent artist in Los Angeles. To begin the show, let's talk about that new store. I am Ria Van Atta, and that's about it. (laughs) But that isn't it. Vanetta just opened the Old Town General Store in her historic hometown in Lansing. I grew up here in Old Town, just down here on Turner Street. Moved here from the Philippines in 1972. And then uh, in 1981, I graduated from high school here at Eastern High School. And then I took off and, you know, to sow my oats, so to speak. (laughs) Um, and went away for quite a few years. And I've always wanted to come back to Old Town because this is kind of where my heart is. Vanetta says Old Town used to be a bustling area in the 70s. And then when downtown Lansing uh, was created, you know, the, the traffic sort of, you know, got diverted over there. So slowly this was kind of becoming more and more of a little bit of a ghost area. And at that time, when I was riding my bike from Turner Street all the way to LCC, really at night when I was coming home from school, I would ride my bike down the middle of the road because I didn't want anybody grabbing me from either side. (laughs) You know, I had to think this way. You know, it's a little little street smart person. Mm -hmm. Um, Literally. (laughs) Yeah, you had to be. And Vanetta hopes to revitalize the area of Old Town. Originally, my thought was I wanted to do everything kind of Michigan, organic, sustainable. And then as I researched this, it really wasn't possible and fill the needs of everybody that of, of um, having a grocery store, per se. You know, like, we don't produce salt in Michigan, okay? <laughs> or or um, we don't really have toothpaste or we don't have uh, recycled paper products that's affordable. I would start out looking in Michigan first. If I don't find it there, I'll go a little bit further out geographic, geographically. And so it might be Midwest. 
and then I'll go out even further. Like we have some products from Canada, for example, but really Canada is closer than the UP, right? Mm -hmm. uh, New York might be closer than <laughs> some parts of the UP. The new owner is also focusing on organic and natural foods. You know, I've always been a proponent for uh, keeping our environment intact for the next generation. That's how come we have sustainability on our sign. You know, it's okay to use what we have available to us now. And this is not just for agriculture, this is for everything. Use what is given to you now, but leave something for, for the next generation. And you know, don't deplete everything. But this is just to make it available for people that are right here. They don't have to drive anywhere. They can ride their bike here. I was fortunate to get a full tour of the new general store and a complete rundown of many of the products, from wine to jelly to um, salsa to happy cows. Talking about the beef here, is there a difference in how it's produced? Oh yeah. Okay. These are happy cows. Happy cows. <laughs> happy cows from the Schneider okay. family organic and dairy farm. And you know, th these guys, it's kind of like, uh, how did he put it? Mr. Schneider told me, he goes, well, it's kind of like having your couch potato uh, versus the athlete, you know, because these cows, you know, they run around, they're free range. Uh, they graze all day long. They're not being fed grains because cows really are not a grain eater naturally. They're a grazing animal. And so the meat is a lot leaner. Okay. You know, the, these cows look you know they're happy they're not standing knee deep in their own stuff you mm -hmm. know okay. so now here what we have i do try to carry um a pretty good selection of gluten-free products too because mm -hmm. more and more people are having mm -hmm. problems with that um and then we have for example like veggie burgers okay there's nobody in michigan that i found that <laughs> can wholesale and make veggie burgers and we have a lot of vegetarians that come here these pierogies are from michigan mm -hmm. And those are great also. Um, now, what's your favorite flavor of the gelato? Oh my God, it's the, it's the, it's the dark chocolate. Oh. Right there. Dark this, actually, where it says chocolate balsamic strawberry, mm -hmm. it sounds a little weird, but it's really good. Yeah. yeah. Oh my gosh. But I would have great. to say the one that's sold the best is the hazelnut. We actually have probably about maybe six or seven varieties of of Michigan wines. Um, the one that has sold the best for us is this Moabi, and it's a sparkling wine. Ooh, okay. um, here, but I can say that all of our beers are all Michigan craft beers, great. because Michigan has great beer, so mm -hmm. that hasn't been a problem. I mean, as far as like the names of some of these guys, who names these things? Like <laughs> Final Absolution. You know, or diabolic, diabolical. <laughs> There's dragon's milk. This has been by far our, probably our biggest seller of okay. beer. Is that a dragon's milk. Yeah, it's a stout. It's really like it? good. Yeah, yeah, it's good, but it's very strong. And um, I'm not really good at describing beers. <laughs> it's hard. I'm more of a wine girl. <laughs> sure. But um, but I had to try it because everybody was drinking it, and I thought, well, what's 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 so good about it? Mm -hmm. I know that it's very strong, it has a high alcohol content. Mm -hmm. So like one beer might equal two. So drink it in moderation or <laughs> slowly or with bread. Uh, soak it up or something. <laughs> um, but as far as wines go, the one, my favorite, it's a vineyard here. Oh, dreaming tree. tree. It's a collaboration between Dave Matthews and acclaimed winemaker, Steve Reeder. Very nice. Yeah, you know, I mean, if you're familiar with uh, Dave Matthews, he's got mm -hmm. a, I think, a song called Dreaming Tree. Yeah. And he also has a song called Crush. 
the one I like is Dreaming Tree Crush, which is a red blend, and it's just lovely, lovely one. You drank it all, didn't you? <laughs> I did. <laughs> I have to order an extra and case. And back here, though, this is a really cool part, and it's one of the reasons why I really love this building. Mm -hmm. It had this oh, real wow. green space in the back. I, I just really saw it, and I saw the possibility of extending my store further back and, and creating a nice space space for people to be mm -hmm. and um, I'm hoping to be able to uh, host some um, acoustic concerts mm -hmm. back here wow, yeah so there's a nice. stage back there and after the full tour I asked how Vanetta would describe her store in one word eclectic you know um, but as far and even it's hard one word <laughs> how about two <laughs> I much kind of think of it as my second home mm -hmm. and I think that's how calm it has this feel about it I mean it's an extension of myself really mm -hmm. if you come to my house you'll see it'll feel like this <laughs> I don't have as much wine but oh uh, <laughs> not yet we're gonna knock on your door now <laughs> no but seriously I mean but it's just a fun place to be. The Old Town General Store has been open since early May, but the grand opening will be on Saturday, June 15th from 12 p.m. until 5 p.m. Vanetta has a full day planned. Um, there'll be music during that whole time, and then at 4.30 we're going to open it up to a music jam. So if you want to come and you have an instrument you can play relatively well, come and join us. Um, there'll be food, there'll be uh, some refreshments. What else? And then you can just be part of the fun. And the Old Town General Store is certainly ready for the fun. For Impact News, I'm Abby Newton. Again, the grand opening is June 15th from 12 to 5, and don't forget, you can bring your own instrument and join the fun. Again, it's 408 East Grand River in Old Town. Now we're going to take a break to listen to Crush by Dave Matthews, which inspired Ria Vanetta's wine choice in her store. Sleeping 
Australian songbirds and stuttering have in common. The zebra finch may hold the answer to finding the biological source of stuttering. Associate Professor in Psychology Jim McCauley and Chair of the Department of Psychology Julie Wade have been working on research about stuttering and are in the studio now to discuss it. And welcome, and it's Devin. I'm so sorry. <laughs> I just had a typo. <laughs> How are you guys doing today? Doing great. Thanks for having us. Good. So tell us about this research. It's very unique. Um, this is a, a, a large interdisciplinary project that brings together um, myself, um, Julie Wade, um, Suan Chang, who's actually the expert on stuttering, and Laura Dilley, who does work on speech perception. And the project is about trying to understand the neural basis or the brain basis for why um, individuals stutter. Um, and the, it, it brings together a range of different um, techniques from neuroscience to work in communicative sciences and disorders to behavioral methods. And Okay. How long have you been working on the project? We've been working on it for about a year. Um, and this led to the uh, proposal that we put in for uh, the project to the Grammy Foundation. And that's who's funding it, is the Grammy mm -hmm. Foundation. you got to feel pretty cool about that, huh? Yeah, <laughs> I think it's a lot of fun, actually. Yeah. <laughs> I would probably make a T-shirt or write that on, you know, somewhere. Say, yes, I'm funded by the Grammys. Maybe you can get a little trophy, too. We should do that, yeah. yeah. Uh, all I would like is tickets to the Grammys. So. <laughs> there you go. So uh, tell me more about the research in particular. How exactly does the procedure work, and how are you really delving into the topic of psychology and stuttering? Um, so the, the, the key idea is that, um, one of, that one core problem in stuttering 
maybe not a production problem. So not uh, so yes, there are individuals that stutter have problem producing speech, but they may have a perceptual problem. So they they have difficulty perceiving a rhythm. Okay. And perceiving in particular a beat. So when we dance to music, we can we dance to the beat in music, and even when the music stops, we can sort of hear that beat in our head. Mm -hmm. And so the idea here is that this um, ability to internally generate a beat involves the same neural circuitry that individuals who stutter seem to have um, impairment in that circuitry. So in the humans, <clears throat> they're using uh, imaging, fMRI, um, to try and understand or find the brain areas and how they respond to changes in rhythm, rhythm, uh, rhythm perception. And we're doing parallel studies in songbirds. So we're playing, we have examples of um, normal rhythmic song and arrhythmic song, and we can play these examples to birds and um, look at the responses in the brain. Okay, and we actually have both those examples, mm -hmm. so we'll go ahead and play the rhythmic example yeah. and so, see how... So what's really striking of the rhythmic example is how actually very regular the, the normal zebra finch song is. Mm -hmm. And that was the rhythmic or, um, cycle. And so now we'll go ahead and play the arrhythmic and see. Audience, you can see if you can tell the difference. This might help you. Who knows? <laughs> you really can tell that little yeah, skip. So we're interested in essentially if the zebra finches can tell the difference. Um, and and this is sort of one of the first studies to, to vary sort of the timing of the song and look at how their brains may respond differently to the different types of song. Right, and eventually we'll be able to look at whether, uh, behaviorally, whether they prefer one song versus the other as well. So. And how did the idea for this project begin? So, so the idea for the project um, really uh, emerges um, through our, our interactions between Suen, um, myself, Julie, and Laura. Um, and the interesting observation is that, so my work is on mostly rhythm. And uh, so I do work on psychology of music, neural basis of rhythm perception, and the observation that the same areas that are involved in beat perception seem to be implicated in stuttering and um, to a striking degree. So the same whole network of brain areas. And so that led to the idea that it would maybe um, children who stutter have a perceptual problem. and. Um, the, the work with the zebra finches is valuable here is because they're um, vocal learning um, species. So they obviously don't have language, but they learn to produce their song, which is relatively rare in the animal kingdom. And that's similar to, to humans. Okay. Right. So they learn a single song from their, usually from their father or some other male tutor, um, and they sing it for the rest of their lives once they learn it. Um, and, and so they're a very easy model to raise in captivity, and we can uh, modify their, their uh, or expose them to different things at various stages of development. And ideally, we'll be able to get them to stutter as well. Wow. I, I don't know if they're ready for that, you think? I don't <laughs> Just know. Maybe they you know, won't be able to dance, but they'll be all right. That's right. Now, That's Julie, right. you're the bird expert. So were you looking at any other birds or any other possibility? Um, we haven't used any other species. Zebra finches are really um, among the very few that breed readily in captivity. And because we're looking at a developmental process, that's really important. Um, 
so we're, fo we're focusing on these birds in particular. M my research actually um, is, I I'm interested in uh, neural mechanisms regulating behavior, although I hadn't, until I started talking with Devin, hadn't really pursued anything related to rhythm perception or stuttering. Do you think that you'll bring humans into this study somehow? Yes, so, so half of the project involves um, behavioral um, studies with children and all neuroimaging studies with, with children. So we will be doing sort of functional um, brain scans of children while they're doing a very simple um, rhythm game. Mm -hmm. um, and so we've um, collected some data already that um, suggests that children who stutter have worse performance on this sort of rhythm game compared to sort of to normally developing children. So the goal really is to do parallel studies to the extent that it's possible in the kids and the developing birds mm -hmm. um, and see what kind of common mechanisms we can find. In the birds, if, for instance, they do start to stutter, can they ever go back or is it with their species that they can't? I don't know. It's a great question, right? So, th yeah, that's an interesting question. So the idea is if there's some, some change in their, that happens to what they're exposed to in their development that induces stuttering, then it would be possible to potentially test different kinds of interventions, like a rhythmic intervention that might ameliorate their stuttering. Right. And so I, we could try things in the birds that we can't do in kids until we're sure that they work, right? Mm -hmm. And how many birds do you have? Hundreds. Wow. Yeah. And are they from Australia? I mean, well, do you get them from Australia? I don't. I purchased okay. them from a supplier when I came to MSU 18 years ago um, and a couple times since, uh, but mostly we just breed them. Wow. Okay, and then how many um, children are being studied and evaluated the, as well? The children in, the, in this study are part of actually a, a larger um, project that um, Professor Chang has going looking at um, developmental aspects of stuttering, so working with young children. And she has um, been testing uh, approximately 80 children in that study and those some of those same children in that study are participating in our study. I should say we're not using hundreds of birds in this study. We're using <laughs> dozens. Mm -hmm. <laughs> a couple, a couple dozen. But. Like, where are you keeping these birds on campus? Uh, they're in the basement of Giltner Hall. Okay. We might have to make a field trip over there. Sure. Um, now, if, for instance, you know, you find out all about the rhythmic, that it does correlate with stuttering and it kind of seems like it has already. Now, does that mean that could you cure it in humans, you think? So so the idea, the long-term goal, mm -hmm. so this is a basic research project to try to understand sort of the basic um, mechanisms and whether, whether or not rhythm perception deficits are sort of a core problem in stuttering. Mm -hmm. But the idea would be then that you could then translate the basic research to the development of new um, therapies that involve... Um, some kind of rhythmic training. Mm -hmm. Right. The idea is, is it's based on the premise that um, there are remarkably similar brain regions in mammals, including humans and songbirds, that um, are involved in these sorts of processes like rhythm production, rhythm perception. Okay. And um, I guess, are there any other people who are working on very similar projects using birds or even other animals in the stuttering research? Um, in, more, in broad, broad terms, there, so there are a number of researchers that do work um, on using zebra finches for to study stuttering. Mm -hmm. There's lots of work, certainly, on rhythm perception, but this is the only study that I'm aware, aware of that's combining right. combining the two, um, and also um, trying to get sort of a series of parallel studies in kids and songbirds. 
Okay. Well, it sounds like you guys are doing excellent work and it's coming along very nicely. Now, how long do you think the whole process will take? It's already taken a year. So what do you think? Well, the first couple, the first set of studies will probably be done within a couple of years. Mm -hmm. And that's the money that we have from the Grammy Foundation to, to support that work for a couple of years. Hopefully this will be a very long-term collaboration. Yeah, that's our hope. Okay. Well, great. Thank you so much. Um, this is Devin McCauley and Julie Wade with Thanks. the Department of Psychology at Michigan State. Thanks for having well, thank us. Thank you for having us. You're listening to Impact Exposure. First floor. Hey, what floor are you going to? <clears throat> oh, uh, three. Thanks. <coughs> hey, didn't we uh, have... Yeah, that one class. Yeah, that's so funny to, <laughs> to see you, because I <coughs> thought maybe we could... Uh, would you ever want to... Um, <coughs> I was wondering if you, if I could stick my finger in your eye. What? No. Oh, I just flushed some toilets and touched a doorknob. What? I've been keeping this moist Kleenex Ew, in my pocket. That's uh, so gross. I thought we could, you know, just stick my finger Ugh. in your eye. Is that weird? No, don't touch me. What's wrong with you? Oh, sorry. Well, ever since you got in the elevator, you've been coughing all over your hands and pressing those buttons, so I just thought you were into that kind of thing. Free. Studies show that three quarters of women and only half of men actually wash their hands in the bathroom. That's nasty. Stop the flu and other germs by regularly washing with soap and avoid touching your eyes, nose, and mouth. More at cdc.gov slash clean hands. Impact 89 FM. For more variety than you'll hear on any other station, listen to the Impact Primetime, Primetime, where you can find a different specialty show every night of the week. From 10 p.m. until midnight Sunday nights, listen to the Impact Afterglow, where you can hear a variety of relaxed tracks to help you ease into the start of a new week. Only on Impact Primetime. Primetime. Now back to Impact Exposure. studied uh, sports psychology at Michigan State University where she obtained her master's degree. Now she's living in Los Angeles as an independent artist. She followed her calling for music and has lived in LA for 15 years. Now Verse is also a proponent of gay marriage. She wrote a song called Marry Me to gain support for gay marriage and convey a deeper message. I spoke with Verse about the song earlier today but here's a song and then I'll talk about what she had to say about it.
Arrowverse. And I spoke with Arrowverse uh, later to, earlier today about what she thought of the song, her inspiration, and everything else about the gay rights and the gay marriage. So here she is now. So tell me about this song, Marry Me. Where did it come from? Uh, Why did you create it? And where did the inspiration for it come from? When President Obama came out in support of marriage equality, I was so inspired and moved by his, uh, his statements and his, him going public with it. And two days later, um, the song just came to me. And the song, for me, when I was writing it, I, I'm a lesbian, and so this particular issue is extremely important to me. Mm-hmm. And it, 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 has, it affects my quality of life, my human experience. And I think that that's something that um, even people who are in support of it, they might not kind of understand it to the extent, I guess, that, that you know, people in the LGBT community, um, you know, uh, understand the issue. Because, I, I mean, I live this issue <laughs> um, mm-hmm. on, a, on a daily kind of basis of the effects of it. And so, of it being illegal. Mm-hmm. And so anyway, but when I wrote it, I didn't want it to just be for the LGBT community. I wanted it to be for everybody. Um, I have a love for people who are even homophobic. You know, I love them. And so I originally wanted it to be, you know, a song for everyone, and, and it has a message in there. And so however they relate to the song, uh, good. You know, I want them to hear it. I definitely want them to be challenged about what they believe, you know, if, if they don't believe in it. But at least putting the catchy song, the catchy chorus into it, if you like the song, then you're going to think about it, <laughs> you know. <laughs> and um, so I tried, you know, I wanted to make it very likable and easy for people to like and dance to. And I would love this song to be at, like, all weddings, you know. <laughs> you, always hear those, you always hear the same wedding songs at every single wedding. And I would love this to be up there with them. <laughs> Maybe you can start it and see where it goes. <laughs> yeah, yeah, sounds good. Now, when did you um, discover that you were a lesbian? You know, I, I don't, it's not that clear to me. I know people have their stories mm-hmm. about when they first knew and all this type of stuff. I, I, I honestly, I really, when I was younger, I really wanted to play professional baseball, and that's what I thought about. And <laughs> I did, I just kind of thought more in lines of like sports and music. And I mean, I know I had different attractions here and there, but I just didn't think much of anything. And then, you know, just as I became a lesbian, it was just, um, something very accepted by everybody around me, including my family. So there was no big kind of out process. You know what I mean? It was mm-hmm. just natural, and, and, and it was easy transition. So, and I do think, too, in having that type of experience, um, which I know is very different than some of my other LGBT counterparts, I think that I have kind of like a shield in some way of that, you know, everyone's accepting of this kind of viewpoint that I write from. Mm-hmm. And, um, and, but I also know, too, that it's important for me to speak from that viewpoint because uh, I'm there to help uh, their situations as well. Like, let's say if they have a close family member who is, is against, um, you know, their marriage or, you know, something like that or is homophobic or something like that, to me, one way I feel like I can make a difference is writing a song that that family member is going to like. <laughs> mm-hmm. So they, you know, in some subconscious way or some way, it's like kind of my way of like 
helping that situation, if it makes any sense. I mean, I can't, you know, I can't go around and talk to every single person who's homophobic or anything, but I can write a song, so. So do you feel like that power of the song is more powerful than just a regular conversation you'd have on the street? I do, I do. Um, There's one quote that Beethoven said. He said, music is a higher revelation than philosophy and knowledge. And when I read that quote a few months ago, to me it just really spoke to the power of music and um, I think being able to tap into a number of things that knowledge or, you know, just simple communication can do. One thing, it's big, it's bigger than my body, you know what I mean? So if mm-hmm. I'm sitting here having a conversation with you, it's between you and me and whoever your listeners are and things like that. But music, to me, it, it can travel in all different forms and... It's it's really kind of like a my spirit for this particular song is just laid out there for everyone at any time they can access it, you know. And mm-hmm. so uh, I do, I think music is extremely powerful, and um, I think also that we haven't really had too many songs uh, recently that are popular that are necessarily about what's going on with the gay rights issue. Mm-hmm. Uh, I know Macklemore had, you know, his great song where he's showing um, support of of gay love and things like that. Um, mm-hmm. I also think that, you know, the songs like that Bob Dylan used to write or um, John Lennon and things like that, they're kind of, it seems like, to me, missing in, like, popular culture right now. And what has the response been uh, since you created Marry Me? It's great. It's great. It's been, you know a little slow in the beginning because I, I did this last year so I think I was pretty ahead of the game <laughs> with those oh, yeah. because that was before all the gay sports stuff that was before uh, the four states had won in the election as far as um, the ballot measures for marriage equality on mm-hmm. uh, you know things like that so it was just kind of ahead of the game and so now uh, I see that things are starting to catch up to the song, like society is in a way, to be accepting of the song by a gay artist, too. I, I played it, I performed it, they had a Los Angeles City, ra- uh, City Hall rally, and uh, that was when the Supreme Court was doing the hearings, and it was the most beautiful thing. I mean, there was a, probably four to 500 people there, and, you know, we had different speakers and things like that, and then at the end, I performed the song, and I, I kind of taught it to them first, the chorus, so they could sing it with me. And then, you know, sure enough, when I'm singing the song, and you hear all those voices, and most of them gay, sing Marry Me, which is illegal right now in California <laughs> to be able to, to to make that happen. It was just, to me, that's what the song is about. You know, it's, it's about spiritually connecting to people where they can be there and letting the laws, you know, follow in that direction because they're not there yet. It's interesting to me because you would think that, you know, Louisville, Los Angeles area, having such a huge creative community that, and not only that, San Francisco, which is like the gay mecca, mm-hmm. it's like, you know, you would think with those two power cities that, that, that the state would be on different terms, but uh, there's, you know, you think there would be more acceptance. And that was Arrowverse about the gay marriage in her song, Marry Me. Now, moving on, we are going to take a break, and then we'll come back and talk to a Spartan who was a former Marine sniper. You're listening to Impact Exposure. 
For more variety than you'll hear on any other station, listen to the Impact Primetime, Primetime, where you can find a different specialty show every night of the week. Friday nights at 10 p.m., get ready for The Mechanical Pulse, where we're spinning all the house, trance, drum and bass, electro, ambient, and remixed music you need to get the weekend started. You'll hear live interviews and DJs spinning straight from the Impact Studios and the best new music on the scene. So tune in every Friday night at 10 p.m. for Mechanical Pulse. Only on 88.9 The Impact. Have you ever considered donating your blood? If not, perhaps you might reconsider. By the time this announcement is through, 15 new people will need blood. In fact, blood is needed by one in every 10 hospital patients, and there is almost always a shortage. There is no substitute for human blood. It cannot be manufactured. It can only come from those willing to donate. To learn more or make an appointment, visit redcrossblood.org. Reconsider blood donation. It's about life. Now back to Impact Exposure. Logan Stark is not your typical college student. In 2010, he was part of the 3rd Battalion, 5th Marine Regime in Afghanistan. This Marine operation lost 25 men. Now, Logan Stark is a senior in the professional writing program, and he created a documentary for an advanced multimedia writing class with two classmates, Rebecca Zanscher and Lexi Dakin. It was titled For the 25 and detailed his and other Marines' experiences in Afghanistan. He's with us today. Hello, Logan. Hi, thanks for having me. Thanks for coming. Now, talk to us about this documentary and where the idea came from and what it was like kind of going back to Afghanistan, almost in a sense. It started with a short that I did for journalism class here at Michigan State with Professor Carl Good, and he wanted a three- to five-minute video of a good story. He wanted you to use your iPhones, your point-and-shoot cameras, whatever technical things you had at your disposal to create this video. The only requirement was that it was a good story. And so when I was going through this project, I thought, what do I know that's a good story? And I immediately thought of my best friend, roommate, fellow Marine, Kevin Frame, who was shot in the head in Afghanistan and is still alive. And so I filmed the video in my basement, putting a camera on a stack of pizza boxes. Um, And what ended up was a six-minute short that, eventually became to become the basis of what For the 25 was. And For the 25 is now 48 minutes long, so it's almost, what, eight times that? So Yeah, it definitely took on a life of its own after we started making it. Mm-hmm. Now, you know, you were a Marine, and you were 20 years old when you joined the Marines. So what was that experience like, being 20 and going to a whole other country to experience a whole different lifestyle? It was the most broad learning experience you can ever imagine. I mean, foregoing your past life, starting new, throwing yourself into these different countries, these different cultures, and trying to learn how to protect and communicate with different people is definitely a learning experience that not a lot of people get to go through. Why did you decide to join the Marines? Um, I felt like it was something I needed to do. I had that that patriotic urge, the uh, the will to serve. And I did it all on my own. I I went to the recruiting office without telling anybody. I and I sat down uh, with my mom at lunch one day, and I was I told her I was going to boot camp in a couple months, and and that was that. What was her response? She was very supportive. Um, you think moms to be that? Oh, I don't want you to go, but she's like, you do what you feel like you need to do. And how would you describe boot camp? 
Uh, boot camp was the breaking down stage. Um, you need to learn how to function uh, as a follower uh, before you can become a good leader. And so it was a process of going through that stage. Did you feel like just in boot camp you changed and you began to see a whole alteration of your own self? Yeah, I think everybody comes out of boot camp a different person. You adopt new mannerisms, you speak a different way, you carry yourself a different way, and it's kind of hard not to come out uh, with those different effects. Mm-hmm. And uh, your regime in Afghanistan lost a lot of men, and very quickly, too. I think it was eight men in 10 days was one of the statistics on your video. How did you cope with that when you're in Afghanistan? Uh, when it happens so quick like that, you really don't have a choice but to look at it, figure out how to respond to where that doesn't happen again. And so from that point on, it was us accepting the fact that it could be this bad, the whole deployment, the rest of the six months, and adapting to our situation and figuring out how to make it out of there alive, essentially. And were you scared? Yeah, I was scared. I don't, <laughs> I don't know anybody who wasn't scared. You know, you, you try not to show it on your face before you leave for a patrol every day, but of course. Mm-hmm. And how did you overcome that fear while you were there? The brotherhood that you have with uh, the men around you, knowing that they're just as scared or anything could happen to any of you. But when you go out, you have to rely on each other to take care of each other, to support each other, and that's where you gain your strength from. Mm-hmm. And you could sense the brotherhood in your documentary, you know, I mean, in many, many parts of it, because you, um, you interviewed three people. Uh, can you talk about each of those people? Uh, well, it, it started with Kevin Frame, who became the idea behind the film, and he's my roommate, so I'm just like, hey, let's drink some beers. Let's sit down in front of a camera and talk a little bit. And and then as it started to progress, I decided I needed to get a couple more guys. So I went to go to Chicago to interview Matt Smith, who's currently a student at DePaul University. And I see him pretty frequently now since we're so close. So I got to interview him, and then I went out to Idaho to interview Jordan Laird, who I had not seen in a very long time. He had been doing private contracting in Afghanistan, so it was the first time I had seen him in probably a year. Oh. And I got to spend uh, quite a few days with him. I got to see his family again, and he's got two little girls right now who are just little <laughs> bundles of joy and catch up with him. And it was just a great time. And through the video, you could really sense the emotion, you know, and a lot of the guys, I think they were surprised that they felt it during the interview as well. I mean, there were tears and you could really see it on their faces. What Were you trying to bring back the emotion to convey a different message with your video? When I go into the interview, I don't really expect anything to come out of it. Mm-hmm. Um, I just want to kind of explore those experiences and what comes of it is kind of a result of the whole process of sitting down and it becomes this therapeutic session. Like when uh, I'm interviewing Matt and he has this deeply emotional time, the question that I had asked him that got that response was a question that I thought was going to be 
a happy response. It was, mm-hmm. what was it like for you coming home? And I expected it was it was everything to be back on on the, in the states, and he just it just hit him, and you could see it on his face. Mm-hmm. And we were talking before the show and this interview, and you were talking about when you came home. You came home in July, and then you began school in August at Michigan State University. What was that adjustment like? It was about as. <laughs> different as going from civilian life to boot camp mm-hmm. like it was just the opposite going from being around a group of guys who are gunfighters every day to college kids who are seven years younger than me it's it's a culture shock in a way that most people don't have to experience so it was it was a learning experience just like everything else was throughout this whole process and it took some time to adjust for sure do you feel like you're still adjusting to that? Because you're still seven years older. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I am. Um, and this video has helped with that process and allowed me to kind of open up and to um, tell people who I am and what my past is like. And it's overall, it's just been a, a really great experience. What have the other responses of the Marines that you were also stationed with been upon the video? Um, I have gotten nothing but an outpouring of support people are if i could show you the emails and the messages (laughs) and the phone calls i've got like people are just like you just keep doing what you're doing and we love it it's inspiring it's healing it's showing something that we knew happened that nobody else knew about and so that is kind of making me take this next step into wanting to continue to do this stuff. Because mm-hmm. you had a, almost 20,000 views or over 20,000 views on YouTube, which is crazy and outstanding. But I watched the video last night and it, it really was, I mean, it evoked emotion. It was it portrayed something that you think you understand from the media, just but you really don't. And I think the average person doesn't. So it was incredible to see one person take that story and just go with it. Yeah, I think what I really like about it is military people are kind of looked at as like this separate group sometimes and i think it really humanizes um the group of guys that i was with but in the process kind of humanizes military people in general you know we're just guys and a lot of times we're kids and it's not all bad you know there's funny parts in the film there's there's emotional parts there's suspenseful parts and we're just regular guys going, like, trying to make a living. Mm-hmm. And what was your favorite memory looking back? Because there were a lot of laughter in the video as well. Yeah, that, the memorial, I think, for Matthew Abate when when we all got together and got to see him again, mm-hmm. or got to be together because of him. Um, in that moment, you knew what you were fighting for. Because all that other stuff, politics just goes out the window, and you're there for the guy to your left and your right. Can you talk a little bit about Matthew Abate for those of who haven't seen the video? Yeah, he's he's kind of the the what kind of became the focal point in the the middle part of the video, and he was that man that every single Marine that I knew looked up to. He was physically the best mentally the best he won every award you could imagine at every school he went to and he was the leader of of our group of snipers and 
Uh, he was killed in action in December, and because of uh, that was the first time that we got to see each other at, during the deployment because we were split up because we were supporting different companies. And so because of his memorial, we got to see each other again. And it was uh, it was a great time, and it was an awful time at the same time. One of the men in your that you interviewed said, every Marine wanted to be him, and every girl wanted to be with him. <laughs> I thought that was a good explanation. There's no better way to sum up <laughs> that about that. Um, now, what is next for you and your future? Um, well, right now we are in the process of starting a website uh, where the video can live. And I and I posted some comments on the on the video on the YouTube page to um, ask for people if they want to submit a response or if they want to share their feelings about the video to email um, for the twenty five dot com and share how this video impacted you and kind of create a discussion on the website and then uh, the co producers and myself are we're thinking about kind of starting a blog and kind of linking some of the other things that um, are out there regarding our battalion and some of the nonprofits that are going around with vets and helping and getting all that stuff. Do you see other Marines or any other military personnel trying to help people cope and understand in the same way that you have? Um, I don't know. Um, I'm still kind of <laughs> looking at all that, but I don't. I think it's the first time that, like, really sitting down on video mm-hmm. has been used, and I never thought it would be this sort of therapeutic process when I started. But talking to my buddies since, it seems to really help. So mm-hmm. it's kind of inspired me to keep doing it. And you were also interviewed for some of the video. Did it help you? Being Absolutely. Interviewed? Mm-hmm. Um, when we went through the process of making this, the co-producers asked me if I would be willing to to be interviewed and at first I was pretty hesitant to do it it's kind of hard to put yourself out there on video knowing that it has a potential to be seen by a lot of people and then it kind of hit me like how could I ask my brothers to do this if I wasn't willing to do it myself and through that process of sitting down I was able to kind of communicate some of the things that I was going through and it was like after it's done it's like okay it's out there in the world now like you just kind of feel like you got a monkey off your back. Mm-hmm. Now, do you feel like, um, you know, now that you communicated in this way, one, will it continue? And two, do you feel like before people, you know, maybe made it public, it was difficult and almost men didn't want to for some reason to communicate how they felt or that they were scared or that they were hurting? Yeah, I think of it like when you're sitting in class Mm -hmm. and you don't really understand something the teacher says and you want to raise your hand but you're scared that you'll be the only one that doesn't know or doesn't understand but eventually you do raise your hand and you ask that question and then there are other people in the classroom who had that same question and benefit from you raising your hand and I kind of feel that's what this process has been like where you know if I say I'm dealing with these things. Well, there's probably other people out there who are too. And what else can we do to help? You know, let's Mm -hmm. just. A little liberating. Right. Okay. Um, And then last question in the documentary, you asked the question, um, if you could have anyone living or dead, past or present, fictional or non-fictional, jump out of a birthday cake on your next birthday, who would it be and why? (laughs) Could you answer that question? Um, That whole question actually came from, 
the co-producers use that as an icebreaker question <laughs> when they interviewed me. And, you know, when you get on camera or when you're about to be interviewed, you're always nervous and you're tense, and it just helps to have one of those questions. So they asked me that question when I did my interview, and I just did that Kept to every <laughs> single person I interviewed. And But I said Teddy Roosevelt when they asked me. How come? I don't know. I've always just thought he was a good president, and I really just like him as a person and as a man. And then as I went through and I asked everybody else that question, it was Jordan who said Matt Abate, and I was like, perfect. Mm-hmm. He, he leewayed into that segment of the video perfectly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you did a nice job with that as well. Uh, lastly, um, do you think that you'll ever go back to the military? Um, I don't know. I'm still, right now I am in active reserve Mm -hmm. until 2015. So if I have to, I will. I'm under contract, but Mm -hmm. that's kind of uh, a question that, depending on what's going on in the world, kind of deters that. Sure. Well, Logan, thank you so much for joining us. It was a pleasure. Yeah, thank you for having me. And um, before we go, we're going to play a part of his video. It's actually the ending, which kind of sums up the whole thesis in my mind. Throughout this film, I questioned whether I was doing the right thing. Asking my brothers to relive those moments, to delve back into that pain, has been a trying task. But now I understand. We owe it to the 25 who didn't come home, and every other warrior who has paid the ultimate sacrifice. We owe it to them to keep their memory alive, no matter how hard it is for us still walking this earth. We owe it to the fatherless children, to the wives who will never feel the touch of their husband again, to the girlfriends who keep that last letter in the top drawer of their bedroom dresser, to the brothers, sisters, and friends who would do anything to hear their laugh one more time. We owe it to the mothers who never stop praying, and to the fathers who buried their sons too early, and to the grandparents that watched them grow. We owe it to the ones who came home missing limbs and to the men who left their innocence on the battlefield. We owe it to the 25 to keep our brotherhood alive, to live our lives with their memory in our hearts, to help each other the way we did when death was a constant companion, and to make them proud because they will always be with us in spirit. that concludes our show this evening. Thank you for joining us. Special thanks to our engineer, Randy Adams. Producer Gabrielle Sadivia is currently studying in Valencia, Spain, so she's a little preoccupied, but dearly missed. Um, also, thanks to our new station manager, Samuel the Riddle Man, and our general manager, Ed Glazer. Keeping you informed and bidding you farewell until next Tuesday, I'm Abby Newton, Impact Exposure, 89FM. Thanks for listening to this evening's Exposure, only on 88.9 The Impact.